So, Alice. Hi, Ponders. How was your most recent viewing of the film? Rogue One. I think I I don't need to tell you yeah. that I cried again. I um I always do. It's always the end that gets me. Uh, but this time, um, specifically a, a part in our 17-minute chunk got me tearing up. And it was the flashback uh, during her dream when Galen picks her up and puts her back in bed. I started to tear up watching that because it was so sweet. And um, yeah, so, you know, tears. How about you? I I actually also cried this time. Um, Oh. And I... I definitely cry during movies. I'm not like not a crier, but I've also seen this movie a number of times. Uh, So I've become, I don't want to say like crystallized to the ending of it, but you know, I have to be like open to the ending making me cry, which I can, like I can like go into it and be like, I'm going to let this hit the feels or I can go into it and be like, you know what? Maybe today's not a great day for me to cry about Rogue One. <laughs> and I kind of hold back on it. But I think this, it's always a good day to cry about Rogue One. Well, you know, sometimes it's never not. But sometimes it is. <laughs> uh, they're actually this time, the moment that got me. And I, I think when I've watched it a couple times in this challenge, there are parts of the movie... Not that I like skip through or I like, I just glaze over a little bit because I kind of know what's going to happen. And I've been glazing over the scene where she gets the hologram from her dad on Jeddah. Uh, because when I first rewatched this film for the challenge, that scene really shook me. Um, and I've been kind of ignoring it because. I think it's a sensitive spot for me in the movie. And the more and more I get closer to Jin and the more and more I, I dig into her and understanding her position in all of this, the more and more that scene hurts. And this time I didn't really have a, a choice. I, because I've, I've been working some particularly long days. I ended up, uh, like exhausted and I, I couldn't convince myself to not <laughs> focus on the film. Uh, and so that scene in particular got me and we're getting closer to it because that's, that's what we're going to talk about next time. Uh, yeah. But yeah, uh, that one's going to, that's going to be a hard episode to record for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get that feeling as well. It's, it's becoming increasingly like personal for me and yeah, so we'll get there next time. This time, we have some <laughs> pew, 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 fighty, fighty action stuff. We got a sweet action scene on Jetta. Yeah, not, <laughs> not, not, not Jakku. Jetta. <laughs> I have, uh, you can't see it, but on my wall, I have a little sign taped up that says Jetta. <laughs> does not equal Jakku. <laughs> oh my god, can you take a picture and send that to me, please? Yeah, I will. <laughs> put it on the Twitter. That's yeah, amazing. I'll put it on the Twitter. So <laughs> I'm not sure oh, it'll awesome. stay there forever, but it, you know, it's there for now. <laughs> so we we ended with it's high. It's very high. You're letting her keep it. Would you like to know the probability of her using it against you? It's high. Let's get going. It's very high. And so the first thing we see as they're pulling away, uh, we we see General Draven, his... Smug. (laughs) Like, head down, he's walking away. But they pull away, and they're leaving Yavin 4, and you get a shot of the lookout post... The guy in the white helmet with his macro binoculars tracking the ship as it leaves. They ha- it's an identical shot to one that they use in, in A New Hope. It's it's all just so classic Star Wars. Like this yeah. is the kind of s- cool space travel stuff that we just like love out of out of Star Wars. It's yeah. beautiful. 
Um, and then... <laughs> Lies! Deceptions! Deceptions! <laughs> Sagarera. finally. What a man. We've only seen a glimpse of him at the end of Jin's dream. Uh, but now we are going to get the full the full revelation of him. Because before it was just his head. And uh, he has a fairly normal looking head. But it's only now that we realize that there's, uh, as he says, not much of him left. <laughs> yes, he's more machine than man now. Yeah. Um. Yeah. He, Ed Forrest Whitaker is so intimidating. Imagine sitting there blindfolded like Bodhi Rook and, and you're scared, but you know you're trying to do the right thing. And somebody takes off your blindfold and then Forrest Whitaker is standing there in front of you. Cyborg like, Forrest Whitaker. Cyborg Forrest Whitaker standing there in front of you. Okay, I can hear you. You didn't capture me. I came in myself. I defected. I defected. Every day, more lies. Lies? No, would I risk everything for a lie? I, no, we don't have time for this. I have to speak to Saul Guerrero before it's too late. As for you. Grizzled and gray and his like eye twitch and just so scary. And also with that heavy cyborg like breathing. That mm-hmm. definitely reminds me of Darth Vader. Absolutely. Um, and I I don't know if Bodhi makes that connection, but it's it's got the same effect. It's the same effect of this intense breathing that's like this man is at the edge of his life and nothing is more horrifying than a man who is like fighting against all odds to still be in front of you, even though it looks like he should be dead now. You know, he yeah. he has that sort of like, uh, there's almost like a zombie-esque quality to Darth Vader and Saw Gerrera in the way that they've like been put together to just survive and they'll they'll give up their own limbs just to continue on, you know. Yeah, and it's so intimidating. Yeah. But unlike Darth Vader, uh, the, he's he's just piecemeal. Like none of his parts match each other. Right. The his legs are totally different they're different sizes and shapes and everything he has this weird the tubing that holds his little like i'm assuming some sort of oxygen mask of some sort looks like it was just taken from like a ship or something and he's dirty and he's busted and he clearly can't you know walk very quickly he's just barely keeping it together and what's keeping him alive is spite basically Yeah, spite and the cause. And the cause. <laughs> and what we get is just so spooky. Yes. It's so scary. And especially there's something here that I, I want to praise Gareth Edwards for his direction in this section. Because what we experience the entire time is entirely from the position of Bodhi in the blindfold. Right, we don't see Saw's face. Um, right, we don't see Saw's face. We hear the footsteps and we, we see where they're coming from because we have to be looking at something. But we only see the things that are making sounds and we cannot put faces with the words that are being spoken. And so we end up being very isolated and the camera stays down and low to the ground and close in with Bodhi. And then as soon as that blindfold gets ripped off of his head we get the shot upwards towards saw that is horrifying and we are always in this position of looking up at him because we are down with bodhi and then as soon as the blindfold is put back on bodhi we stay down and we don't get to see any other faces there's like 
a worse version of this exact same scene where, you know, we see their faces from the beginning or like at the very end, we get one last grimace from, from Forrest Whitaker as he's like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to bogle this guy and he's going to not know what's coming to him. He's like laughing or smirking or something as Bodhi's being pulled away. But no, you're right. We don't don't see him. It's very, it's very reserved. And it's one of the things I think Gareth Edwards does really well of establishing scene and where we are supposed to be within that scene. Um, And we are supposed to be with Bodhi here. And really importantly, we are supposed to not feel comfortable with them. We're supposed to feel very uncomfortable. You're right. Because the very next thing that they do is torture Bodhi. Like, the very next thing we see is the Borgullet. 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 Bodhi gets pulled away and then sat down in front of the Borgullet. Yeah. Who is super gross. I don't yeah, know. Watching that gross. thing crawl across the ground. I I think that shot with the lighting flashing on its eyeball haunts my dreams. <laughs> it's, it's so spooky. But I think, I don't know. Every time I look at him, I'm like, that thing's nasty. Yeah. He's going to tentacle the hell out of Bodhi's poor face. Poor gullet. And feel your thoughts. No lie is safe. Borgala is the thing that falls the most flat for me on this film, even though it's like my favorite Star Wars film. I love this movie. Mm-hmm. I do I do not enjoy the Borgala. I don't like this scene. I don't like watching it. I get really weirded out with tentacle stuff. Um yeah. But this time I tried to I tried to just watch it and see what else it could make me feel other than disgust. And I guess what I was thinking the whole time was like this is showing us that Sagarera and his band of partisans, they are not above psychological torture yeah. as well as terrorism. Yeah, we already know that he's a terrorist. Like he's been called an extremist. We know the kind of things that he's going to do to soldiers and stuff. But this intimidation tactic, this this actual mental torture against a guy who's trying to give him information is indicative of Saw's paranoia and his zero boundaries on, on what is or is not okay to do in this war scenario. He's totally lost it. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually think... I kind of agree with you. I think the Borgullet falls a little bit flat. Maybe I think about it for different reasons, though. Um, so for one, I think the inclusion of a a torture scene is really important here. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically with our relationship, again, to Saw and this group, we want to feel like negative towards them. The film wants us to have this sort of exclusion from them. But we're supposed to definitely feel ethically unsure about what is going on. The thing about the Borgullet that falls the flattest for me is that there is some mythology going on here that we never get to explore a little bit further. And I think it's, it's one element i i love mythology that we don't see played out all the way because it helps really build a world but that line borgullet will know the truth the unfortunate side effect is that one tends to lose one's mind the side effect is that one often tends to lose one's mind is creepy and delightful and i want to know like i want to know how does the boar gullet communicate with saw how does saw know what the boar gullet sees does the boar gullet like eat your neural pathways like what what does it do how how does this work beyond just simply like constricting him with tentacles because if that's it then like 
it's weird and uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but it's not the like psychological trauma inducing monster that that we believe it to be. Right. And I think it's also a really important device in the development of Bodhi's character. Because as I mentioned in the last episode, Bodhi is someone who already has the personal motivation. He wants redemption. And also, he's on the other side of that change, right? Just like we're talking about K2SO is a reprogrammed Imperial droid. Bodhi is a reprogrammed Imperial cargo pilot who's already on the other side of of changing and making that difference. And he has a personal belief. And so when he gets the neural damage that makes him stutter a little bit more, that fragments the way that he communicates, uh, that really brings him down in terms of his personality from hyperactive to like underactive. Uh, I think that's a really important moment for us right before he meets up with Cassian and Jin. Right. Because he is going to steadily rediscover those things about him, his personal motivation and his reprogramming, while Cassian and Jin are discovering those things about themselves. But he's not overcoming his own character. His character already wants to do those things. He's just trying to remember those things and hold on to them again. And I think that development moving forwards brings Bodhi into a really important place in this entire plot uh, that we wouldn't get without the Borgullet. Uh, right. But I I almost don't think we get enough of the Borgullet, or we just need like one more sentence to explain how it works to really make it cool like if there was one sentence where it was like it eats at the neural pathways and it knows which ones are true and which ones are lies or something like that you know that that kind of thing might might solidify it a little bit more for me uh, yeah i do i i guess i guess you're i i want to know more i guess about the boga instead of just being nasty um but also yeah know, like it's is nasty it, is it sentient is it like is it a is it like a does it yeah does it talk to to saw does it like what is it is it in your mind and like probing your mind does it talk to bodhi while it's in there is it it like a clumency like (laughs) in the past it was often the dark lord's pleasure to invade the minds of his victims creating visions designed to torture them into madness only after extracting the last exquisite ounce of agony, only when he had them literally begging for death, would he finally kill them. Prepare yourself. Legitimate. Or, or maybe it's like um, like a Jedi mind trick. Like it's just gonna make you spew what's real. Like, is it? Is it all in your head? Is it physically doing damage? Or like, like you said, to neural pathways? Like. Yeah, a little, I, yeah, maybe a little bit more about the Borgullet would solve that issue for me. But also, how did they get it? Why do they have a Borgullet? Why is he rolling around with Saw? Like, why Why is it in this cave? Why is it in a cage? Why? I mean, I know why it's in a cage, but how did it get in the cage? Like, there's a whole, there's a whole prequel to Rogue One where a band of terrorists go out and steal a boar gullet from some backwater planet where these things are roaming around and they have, <laughs> they have to, like, tame it. it. It's like a Jurassic Park, but in Star Wars where they're caging up the boar gullet. Like, yeah. it asks so many questions. And, you know, in, in the best mythologizing scenes in films, they do this exact same sort of thing. Like, one of my favorite examples is from Revenge of the Sith, which is the... The Tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise. Do you ever hear the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise? No. I thought not. It's not a story the Jedi would tell you. It's not a story the Jedi would have told you. Yeah, and it asks more questions than it answers, right? It it answers the question, is there a way to become more powerful than death? But it, it doesn't tell you how. It doesn't tell you what the side effects are. It doesn't tell you if Anakin is going to be able to handle those things. Like, it 
presents a whole new set of circumstances and opportunities. And I think the Borg Gullet will also present those, but it also, I don't think, answers enough questions. Like, there's not enough questions answered about it, at least to make it, like, a solid piece of mythological writing. But I also don't dislike it in the way that you do. I, I... I, I, I just feel like it could be flushed out a little bit more, but. Yeah, I, I maybe if, and, and I'm sure it's out there and I'm sure people on Twitter are going to share with us. I'm probably there's some piece of, of comic or online article or something about the Borgullet that I've missed. That's canon that I, that I, it goes like, I haven't, I haven't read any of the comics or anything or, and I haven't finished the Clone Wars show. Like, right. I, like I'm pretty sure Borgel is not in the Clone Wars, but Saw is, and like somebody is going to point out something in canon that answers all of those questions, and and I look forward to it. Please, Twitter. Also, um, I'm going to say this. I don't know if it's going to make it into the final episode. If you have, uh, we'll call it Borgel at Smut. I don't want to yeah. see it. I don't no, want to see it. <laughs> please, please, please don't send us that. Us- if you're going to send us anything about the poor gullet, make it text based. <laughs> uh, I don't want to see the tentacles, please. I can't. I can't do it. Text based and also encyclopedic is preferred. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it's out there. Reproduction cycles of the poor gullet. All right, moving on. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, oh, that's enough. I think about about Saw for now. Let's talk about Tarkin. Tarkin's yeah. next. Could we? I I have a couple things to say actually before we yeah. get to Tarkin. Sure. Um, because I, again, in the vein of Star Warsiness, love the opening setup and the film work that's being done here, where we have. Just the very like tip of the oh, star destroyer that lights I totally, up. I totally wrote that down. And then the the lighting plays back on more of it, and it's a very it's a kind of brilliant inversion of the opening shot of A New Hope, which I think I mentioned in the first episode of this podcast. But right. if if I didn't, my like thesis about the opening shot of the New Hope is you have the tiny little ship. And you identify with that ship, and then you see just the tip of the Star Destroyer, and then you see more of it, and more of it, and it's this whole shot that tells you the Rebellion is this tiny little thing, and the Empire is huge, and yet the Empire can't just shoot the Rebellion out of the sky because the Rebellion has things that the Empire needs, and that is all of Star Wars in a nutshell. Right. 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 That's actually the whole trilogy in a nutshell is that right there. Um, Exactly. And this shot is kind of an inversion of that, uh, which creates the same effect. But you see just the tip of the Star Destroyer. And then instead of it coming over you, it's expanding out as the light is moving against it. And the cinematographer knows how to use light in space. I love (laughs) <laughs> I love this movie. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Yeah, because the, the the light reveals more and more and more of the shiny, pretty, gorgeous, white Star Destroyer, silver Star Destroyer coming out of the sky. And I think it's a model. I. It looks like a model. It looks like a model, which I really appreciate. It looks like a Lego. It, it does look a little bit like Legos. It's but, kind of amazing. <laughs> but then the lights start to shine on... The Death, the Death Star. Star. And you the, like I watched it again this time on my on my big beautiful IMAX screen. Yeah. And seeing the Death Star, I got chills. I was I was like Oh my god. I was like, man, those those Empire ships are big, but like But like wow, this wow. Death Star. The Death Star is huge. It's so big. And yeah, it's yeah, you're right. It's the same thing. It's like look at the ship. You're like this is the ship that we're that we know what a star destroyer looks like. This is the right. size of a star destroyer, and then it pulls out further, and you see how much bigger the Death Star is. And you're like, it's like almost like um, like a old Empire technology, new Empire technology is overshadowing this this itty bitty little ship. Which is again, it's this idea of the relationship between the two ships, 
And it's gonna play out that there's like this small and very impressive imperial ship, but it is nothing compared to the awe and might of the Death Star. And that exact same relationship is Krennic and, and, Tarkin. Uh, and Tarkin. Oh my gosh. In a nutshell, is Tarkin is going to try to be the Death Star and Krennic is going to be nothing more than just a Star Destroyer. Which is uh, too bad for Krennic because right. he like did most of the work for the Death Star. Exactly. Um, it's his achievement. But yeah, so they're putting the, <laughs> the disc in place. Like it's not even finished yet. Yes. And we also get this really good shot. And we have to talk about CGI Tarkin, but we are following him from behind and we know who it is. And what I really love is as he's walking up towards the window, the focus shifts off of him and onto the Death Star and then pulls back onto him. It's this really clearly intentional focal pull where we are looking at him walking up and we know who it is and we think about everywhere that we've seen him and we saw him pull the trigger on Alderaan and then we see him looking at the gun he is going to use to pull that trigger and then it pulls back and he turns around and there's like again this this these two sections with Saw and here with um Tarkin is really scary and really takes us from we're we're making a Star Wars movie to we're making a war movie mm-hmm. but while still maintaining very Star Wars ties and very Star Wars cinematography. Yes, I love this scene. I love CGI Tarkin. They, I think they did such a good job. And I know it doesn't he doesn't quite he you know it's a it's walking the uncanny valley line just a smidge. Yeah. He does uh, like when watching it this time I was like he kind of looks like a video game character. I've always I've always had that thought that he looks kind of like a video game but character. But like a good one though. Yeah, yeah. I looked his name up. His name is Guy Henry. Um it, he was the uh physical stand-in for Tarkin and then they fit him with like CGI indicators and stuff on his face and they captured him and then they used of course archival footage of Peter Cushing and 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 right. and 3D rendered his face onto Guy Henry's face. He looks, I mean, he looks great. He's instantly recognizable as Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing has these intense, beautiful cheekbones right. and this like wonderful kind of skull-like face yeah. that is so intimidating. And, and he's so slimy when he's like, oh, pity about that security breach on Jeddah, huh? Looks like you, you messed that up real bad, you're, Krennic. Like, you're done goofed. <laughs> you're done goofed, Krennic. Most unfortunate about the security breach on Jeddah, Director Krennic. After so many setbacks and delays, and now this. His intonation and his his uh, diction is so crisp and clear and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I, I watch it and I'm like, we're back in New Hope. Like, this is, this is Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, I think it's gorgeous. And, and I think the, the other thing that I, I think is when I first saw this, I didn't, I didn't recognize that it wasn't Peter Cushing. I just didn't know that yet. Right. Um, and it, it totally fooled me. And then people later on were like, yeah, but like video game Tarkin and eat, <laughs> but, but now watching back on it um, and thinking about it from the perspective of the filmmakers, I think they made the right call in the way that they handle it because I think with like we talked like last time about Mon Martha or Mon Mothma, whose name I also looked up by the way because I didn't name her in the in the last episode. Um, the new Mon Mothma, her name is Genevieve O'Reilly, and they cast her for for Revenge of the Sith to be Mon Mothma, but they cut her out of the movie, oh. so they just kept her on. They just like yeah. actually let her do her part, her thing. Her yeah, line. but I, I think I think recasting her is fine and it works but peter cushing has such a defined nature 
I think that they actually like do a really incredible job of recreating that likeness. And from a storytelling perspective, it's just the way that they had to do it to tell the story and to do the story in the best way that they possibly could. Like this film would, and again, I keep talking about the film that it could be, but this film would be nothing if Krennic didn't have something always standing in his way. Right. That is what defines him as the villain of this film is that, you know, he's not this purely evil, all powerful figure. He's purely evil and he creates a thing with tremendous power, but he can't wield it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so once again, going back to our color theory, um, this shot for me is the second time now that we've seen Krennic and once again he's in all white and then the character who is very dark standing in between him and the completion of the Death Star which is the thing that he wants and with the scenes in the beginning what he's standing between is or what Galen is standing between is him and his daughter and his life there right and that's what we were talking about with the white the black and the green right Mm -hmm. here what is being stood between is krennic in between is tarkin and tarkin is blocking krennic from the death star from the completion of the death star and from being the one to take this power right and getting all that bureaucratic uh recognition that he's always wanted from the empire exactly and krennic whose color is white white views the death star as his and the death star in the background of the frame is a bright white because of the light that has just been cast on it and so there's a connection in this scene between him and his death star and as they rotate they they walk and they switch places and then he aligns with his death star and he says the Senate will be of very little consideration after the Death Star is fully operational or something to that effect. The Senate gets wind of our project, countless systems will flock to the rebellion. When the battle station is finished, Governor Tarkin, the Senate will be of little concern. When has become now, Director Krennic, the Emperor will tolerate no further delay. Um, Right. And after saying that, the... The implication of that scene where we're looking at him with the Death Star in the background is he will be the one deciding how this power is being used. And after he says that line, Tarkin walks past him and sets himself between <laughs> between him and the Death Star again and says, no, 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 you're not the one who gets to choose how this is being used. We're going to need a test of this. I get to decide what gets destroyed. You have made time an ally of the rebellion. I suggest we solve both problems simultaneously with an immediate test of the weapon. Failure will find you explaining why to a far less patient audience. I will not fail. But again, again, I think the choreography and the way that they are positioned, the way that these three bodies line up, the Death Star, Krennic, and Tarkin is just so masterfully executed to both show us the story and visually tell us the story with the colors. So yeah, it's not the only time the color theory is going to come up today. More colors. colors. No, that's absolutely, (laughs) absolutely brilliant. Speaking of, of, of color theory, um, this is a really good transition into the very next thing we see after the scene with Krennic and Tarkin, um, which is another dream sequence right? from Jin. And um, we're going to pull back to, your, to the original conversation about the color theory, uh, is we've got Jin in red in this scene. Yes. Now, since we recorded episode one, um, I did ask ask Twitter and ask the internet to help me with the with the red 
Um, and we have a we have an answer to uh, to the red. We didn't talk about this before. Yes. We got the answer to why Lyra is wearing red in the opening, and um, and then maybe this might help us connect to why Jin's wearing red in this scene. So this this piece of feedback um, came to us from at the Star Wars Guru on Twitter. Oh, uh, it looks like they knew um, Stephen single quote the Star Wars Guru end quote Tillman. Uh, on Twitter is his oh, name. Oh, Stephen Tillman. Yeah. Yeah. Always, always a pleasure to hear from from Stephen on Twitter. Uh, Star Wars guru, indeed. Uh, the red sash and underskirt that Jin is uh, that Lyra is wearing in the opening scene is called the Sash of Enlightenment, and it indicates both in its color and its styling that Lyra is deeply connected to the old religion and the old ways. She, and if we didn't already know that by her being the only one to say anything about the force and, um, and giving the, the kyber crystal to her daughter, um, this, the sash and the, and the underskirt are stylized to be like temple garments. Right. And we see Chirrut is wearing something kind of similar in, in, uh, in his scene. Once we finally get to meet Chirrut. And also her costume. It mentions that her costume is very Obi-Wan Kenobi-esque. Uh, yes. She uses a lot of layers and a very high neck to it. Very high collar. Um, that is all very um, visually is supposed to remind you of the Jedi. Because that's Lyra. And and her connection to Jin and Jin's connection to her mother um, is about... Is, is about the force. So that's what that represents, like physically, what the what the garment represents. So mm-hmm. what do we think now that the the red indicates for um for the for the movie and, and like tie it into your to your color theory? So with regards to the color theory, I have also been thinking a lot about how this color red affects the color theory. And I think what I I've brought it all into is really into this idea of trust. Uh, and and because that is the way that Lyra approaches the force. That is the way that she approaches this religion. Trust in the force. Trust in it and putting trust as such a, a clear word. And so if that red shawl connects her back to her religion, connects her back to the Jedi and the Force and the Kyber Crystals and her, you know, imbibing trust in it, then draping her daughter in the color red, which is also going to come up a lot as we're moving around the streets of Jeddah, is it's a way of when she looks at Jin, she reminds herself to trust in the Force, right? When she's when she's got Jin in red in that flashback sequence um, and she looks at Jin, she is reminded of her religion and of her faith. And so even in this time where the entire world around them is the gray and the dark and they're still fighting for their daughter, but they are not on a on Lamu. They're not on this green lush place where they can live their life. They are surrounded by evil all around them. She still has her daughter as a reminder that they are they are trying to fight for something better and trying to escape in a way. So that's how I how I would adjust the color theory and read into it. And then in turn what I what I then read into that further is that as they're walking around the streets of uh Jeddah and there is all of the red that is is directly tied to the color. I mean Chirrut Imwe is wearing the same red shawl that uh that Lyra was wearing uh is that a lot of this world is going to remind her of her mother right the kyber crystals the the um uh the red the force the the connection with trust right all these things are going to remind her of her mother and pull her through this being surrounded by what she doesn't want, being surrounded by something that she doesn't care about and pulling her through to continue on, just like she once pulled her mother through. And these two scenes are right next to each other, is that this color red draws our characters along. And then after Jetta, it 
pretty much disappears from the film. Um, that's uh, really, I think, the end of the color red, with the exception of Chirrut always wearing the that right. part of his costume. So Chirrut is our our spiritual guide here from now on. After after Jin doesn't have Lyra anymore. Chirrut becomes something extremely important to her. And she trusts Chirrut right away. As soon as, as soon as he says, you know, uh, uh, says something about her necklace, she, how do you, how did you know I was wearing a necklace? Like right away from then on, every time she sees Chirrut, she's like, I trust, like, I trust that guy. I trust and, and understand him. And, and, and that's probably what with that sash and the color red and, and his, knowing about her necklace and her, his relationship with the force and the Jedi reminds him of her mom. And but I think Chirrut I becomes Jin's mom. Chirrut <laughs> becomes in a way a surrogate for Jim's mom in the same way that without spoiling too much of what I think I'm going to talk about later, Bodhi becomes a surrogate for Jin's dad. And yeah. she is the finds, last connection to Galen. Right. She finds just like, Literally, you know, Chirrut is the last connection to the Force, and the Force is her connection to her mother. Bodhi is the last connection to Galen, and Galen is her connection to the Rebellion. And Mm -hmm. these two things are going to, you know, drive her to the end. But that is, you know, part of the film that is literally hours from now. We'll get there. (laughs) We are only in minute 26. (laughs) And so in this dream sequence we only hear that there's not not a not a ton of dialogue but we hear galen calls her stardust he says i'll always look out for you And we hear, and then she says, Galen. Those are different. They come from different lines of dialogue from the opening. It comes from trust the force. And then when she, uh, and and before that in the scene, when she uh, is trying to get Galen's attention, like Galen, it's time to go. In Jin's dream, she doesn't say trust the force again. She says, trust Galen. And there's, there's enough space in there that it's not super obvious that what she's saying is trust Galen. Right. But Jin's dream is putting the, is connecting those two ideas together and the visuals cut from her being hugged by her father. The last time she hugged him and and that time on Coruscant from from when she was little, little. And when she's on Coruscant, she sees Krennic. And she sees Lyra and Lyra's face is cold and scared. And then there's Galen hugging her and then puts her down in bed. He picks her up Such and places cut. her in bed and it cuts immediately to her the hatch closing the hatch yeah. on, the, on the hole. Yeah. So she's connecting in this dream. She's connecting her father laying her down to her being shut away in this hole right. because she's still holding on to that blame. Right about Galen, but her mother is telling her to trust right? and to trust Galen. And right. and all of that torment in her mind and, and bringing up of these old memories and stuff. And, and it's just, it's so well, it's so beautifully cut together. And then you see her wake up and you're like, okay, she was dreaming. And I read on my, my note here, I did, I did write this. I read, and I don't know how true this is, that that is the first ever flashback scene in a star wars movie do you know if that's true i think it's i think that's right that that may be true i think that's accurate i'm re-watching all the films in my head real quick yeah me too <laughs> one second at like like 32 times speed right um <laughs> Because I read that, I believe on the on the Wikipedia entry um, again for for Lyra. Um, I did I did read read up on on Lyra for a while today. Yeah. Um, oh, it's not true. It's hella, not hella not true. Uh, what happened? Tell me. Tell me. Is Wikipedia wrong? When Ray touches Luke's lightsaber. <laughs> Go! 
Yeah, she has a vision of the um, past. Yes. Which I imagine being as as flashbacky as a dream, right? Like those are visions and dreams are kind of there. I mean, they're not really flashbacks. When when she does that, I think she sees Luke at one point, but she also sees a young version of herself being left behind on the planet. Yes. That's a flashback. That's definitely a flashback. A, vis- a flashback and a vision and a flashback Paused and a dream are like 100% the same thing. Good call. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. I You know, one seems to be imbued upon Jin by a magical item with the force. The Rey. other... Or excuse yeah. me. Yes. One, one seems to be kind of thrust upon Ray without her control. Oh my gosh. Wait. Because she's touching the lightsaber. And what does the lightsaber have in it? A kyber Kyber crystal. crystal. Jin's got one around her neck, which she picks up and holds in her hand after she's dreaming. What if it's a kyber crystal thing? What if that's, what if that's significant? (laughs) All right, let's, uh, let's up on the wall here. We're going to stick a picture of a kyber crystal, two strings connecting Jin and Ray. (laughs) (laughs) We've got red strings and push pins. It's a conspiracy. So last time, last time I said, you can't call us liars. (laughs) And you can't call us quitters. <laughs> well, maybe you can call us quitters. Um, you might be able to call us liars, too. Because last time we said that we were going to go all the way from lies, deception, to uh, are you kidding me? I'm blind. Uh, and turns out that's a lot of film. 17 minutes of film, which but like so much happens in these 17 minutes. Yeah, and uh, we we talked about three things. <laughs> it, it took us the better part of what we normally record in. So we are going to split this up. We are going to do two because we are still effectively talking about this viewing of the film. Yes. Just we're gonna record another night and we're gonna do this in two parts. Yes. So. Yeah, we're gonna we're going to go ahead and stop here. Um, and we're going to pick back up and finish this segment. Which will be it'll be a nice treat for you. And it'll be nice for us to have more time to talk about these things. Yes. Because the last thing that either Alice nor I want to do is to rush through a thing because we think that we don't have enough time to talk about it when we have thoughts to say. And um, I think we, we both thought this section was going to be, oh, fighty, fighty, pow, pow, um, and then not have anything to say about it. Turns out, as as I think we should not have been surprised by, <laughs> Alice and I have lots to say about this So movie. much to say, <laughs> so many opinions. And uh, yeah, because we didn't even get to the fighty, fighty, pow, pow. We're barely to Jedi. Didn't even really get to Jedi. <laughs> but uh, uh, so Alice... Before we go, you wanted to shout out a couple of people yes. uh, who have been talking to us on Twitter. Besides Stephen, who we already shouted out for his contribution earlier in the episode. Yes, thank, thank you, Stephen. Stephen. Um, the first person I want to shout out, uh, the first person I want to talk about right now is the incomparable Miss Kelly. Kelly reached out to me on Tumblr right after maybe like just a couple of days after we dropped our very, very first episode. And turns out we were both at Dragon Con last weekend. She's the best. So I, so thank yes. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Um, the next person I wanted to shout out is a, t- another Tumblr user. Um, her name is Jin Andor, J- J-Y-N-A-N-D-O-R, which means obviously she's a rebel captain shipper um, like me. Um and wait, wait sorry wait uh rebel captain have I not dropped that that word before no I I don't understand the terminology what oh that's rebel, the yeah that's the ship captain? name for Jin and Cassian <laughs> wait but was it rebel captain rebel captain yeah. um she's the rebel and he's the the captain and 
Anyways, you search that tag on you search that tag on Tumblr, and all the best fan art comes up. And anyways, Jin Andor, gotcha. Okay, um, <laughs> made a gift set of the opening scene from uh, from Rogue One and tagged us uh, in it, and and she basically wrote out our color theory, your color theory, yeah. and. Thank you for um, doing that so that I didn't have to type that up. Wrote it out so beautifully, <laughs> made like really great bullet points about what no, we were saying. Really and made incredible. the gift set highlighting the beautiful colors and stuff from that scene. And it was like basically our first bit of fan art, essentially. Um, and yeah, that's just just really the coolest thing of this engagement that we're getting uh, with people is is absolutely incredible. One more shout out, Twitter. I'm going to shout out uh, Ryan, Ryan Bullock. Um he is constantly uh, recommending us to people and tagging us on follow Fridays and just basically being an, an amazing guy, just like a super cool uh, Star Wars fan. He's one of the one of the most active Star Wars fans on Twitter, I think. And he's um, yeah, he's he's a, a delight mm-hmm. to talk to. So thank you, Ryan. Um, and that's, that's it. That's what I got to say about about Twitter this week. Um, uh, listeners, we'll we'll see you in a bit. To yeah. finish up this segment. So we'll we'll be back. Um Christmas has come early, I guess. <laughs> Double the fun. Yep. Double the rogue fun. Double the rogue fun. There you go. That's our <laughs> that's our motto over here. So <laughs> so Alice, would you like to tell them where they can find you? Uh yes, you can find me personally, Alice White, uh on Twitter at Alice White THP. THP stands for Those Happy Places, which is the uh, other podcast that I run with my best friend uh, Buddy Duquesne. Um, and you can find us collectively on Twitter at RogueFunPod or at uh, rogue, RogueFunPodcast.tumblr.com. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I am TH Ponders, and you can find me at TH Ponders everywhere. Uh, and I also make another show called Accession about art and museums and stuff. And, uh, and it's very good. Thanks. Uh, I think Alice... May the force be with you. May the force be with you. 